I just want you to know I am sorry. Uh, very sorry about the weather. You know, sometimes I think that if Giuliani had maybe had a third term as mayor, I think he would have licked the weather problem. Do you ever get that idea? Yeah. Well, let me tell you in case you're here for the first time, and I, I'm always curious, who is here for the first time to a Socrates in the City event? Wow. We always have newcomers, and they never come back. Have you noticed? It's sad. Who's here for the last time? Be honest. Come on. That's, uh, all right. Yeah, you, you're not being honest. Um, uh, Socrates in the City, if you don't know what it is, uh, best I can tell you is that Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, and uh, I'm sure that New York is a city where people tend not to examine their lives too closely. Uh, we're all very busy, so um, a number of us thought it'd be nice to have a forum uh, where we could ask the big questions, uh, the huge questions about life, God, and other small topics, as we sometimes put it. Um, and so we've been doing that for about eight years now, and we still don't know what's going on, but um, eventually we're going we're gonna to get we're going to get answers somehow. Uh, we try to get uh, big uh, questions, big topics, things that are important. Um, we have had an extraordinary uh, array of speakers over the years, and uh, I could, if you go on our website, you can see um, all of them. And I think I could say, uh, with the exception of Chuck Colson and Jonathan Aiken, none of our speakers has been incarcerated. That's, uh, that is true, that is true. So we probably had about 25 speakers and only two uh, have been incarcerated. So anyway, I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Um, there are still seats uh, up front in case anybody um, really wants to hear anything that Oz or I have to say, these would be great seats to have. And they're the same price if you're showing up late. They're the same price. A lot of people coming in late. Um, okay, well, anyway, that is true. Only two people have been incarcerated, but probably, I don't know if you can say this, but probably the least incarcerated of all would be Oz Guinness. If you know, <clears throat> if you know, if you know Oz, uh, you, can, uh, you can, you could say that. He just has not had much trouble with the law over the years. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that cops are intimidated by the British accent. Have you noticed that? Yeah, he, it's been working for, for Oz for many years, and it is absolutely phony, I know that. But he does it very, very well. He could fool, even British people are fooled by it. That's how good he, he's a con man is what I'm trying to tell you. But um, anyway, tonight uh, Oz's talk is called The Case for Civility and Why Our Future Depends on It. That is also the title of Oz's new book, which if you think about it, it's a mind-blowing coincidence that, I mean, what? Thank you. <clears throat> I don't think it would take much for me to convince you that civility is a timely uh, subject uh, right now, one that deserves our attention. Um, and I, I really don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, um, people, who are uncivil, as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're stupid jerks who should be shot. <laughs> now, some of you might think that by saying that, making that comment, I myself was uncivil just then. And as far as I'm concerned, 
you're a stupid jerk who should be shot also. It's just an opinion. Um, But no, actually, civility, it's obviously a problem in our culture. I don't know if you saw the news this afternoon. Um, Michelle Obama threw a shoe at Hillary. Did you see that? Yeah, that's what things have have come down to. And it actually hit Hillary, but uh, didn't do any damage. It was a tiny shoe. It belonged to Dennis Kucinich. And... um, and uh, he, he had thrown it at Senator Obama during one of the debates, and that's how the Obama camp got a hold of the shoe. And uh, I think Kucinich originally got it at a, a leprechaun swap meet, I think. That's, um... But look, the point is, throwing shoes is no way to elect a president. So this, this has to stop. I hope we can agree on that. Can we agree on that? Okay. Um, I'm always extremely excited to have my dear friend Oz Guinness uh, here at Socrates in the City. As um, many of you know, uh, I came up with the idea for Socrates in the City with Oz Guinness about uh, eight and a half or so uh, years ago. That's true. We came up with it uh, together. Actually, it was so long ago, I really don't know when it was. I, it might have been the early 70s, Oz, because I remember we were, we were riding our choppers through the, uh, through the badlands of South Dakota. I don't know if you... Uh, you remember that? Remember we were debating Kierkegaard? <clears throat> Kierkegaard was actually on a third chopper between us. And we were debating him at the time. Yeah. Now, if you think I'm you know, so dumb that I don't realize it's not possible that Kierkegaard was driving a chopper in the early 70s, I know he wasn't driving it. He was riding on the back of it. Uh, there was some guy named Moose was driving it. And uh, Moose really didn't say that much. <clears throat> but that's, uh, that's true. Um, so, I, I, I don't know, this is really, it's a sad commentary, isn't it, that I would say that about Oz Guinness, but it's true, we were hanging out in the, uh, in the early 70s, and we were different people then, I remember uh, we, were, we were poor and young, we, we actually shared a pair of mutton chop side whiskers between us, you remember that Oz, that's, uh, what did you ever do with those, Oz, it's incredible, I think, uh, I think you shaved them off to get that job, like in 1980. Remember that? Yeah, you sold out. Um, anyway, this is long before we were into this whole civility malarkey thing, right? Um, anyway, obviously, uh, that's a joke, but the fact is that Oz and I did come uh, up with the idea for Socrates and City together. Um, and Oz, to me, has always represented the ideal Socrates speaker because he's a great thinker and a great writer, but also a great speaker. Uh, which is important since this is a speaking event. Have you noticed? Um, and, you know, today, of course, we know that Oz got to be a great thinker and a great speaker in part by taking anabolic steroids. <laughs> and, um, and he's going to be talking to uh, Congress about that next week. Okay, uh, before I actually tell you anything serious about Oz Guinness, uh, let me tell you about tonight's format. Uh, we start 15 minutes earlier. Uh, as usual, we have uh, a talk of about 35 or so minutes. When that's over, we have plenty of time uh, for Q&A, or at least we have some time for Q&A. But tonight, we're going to stop at 8.15 sharp, so don't feel like you have to, to run out. We will stop at 8.15. We're, we're punctual on the back end uh, of things. And um, also, at 8.15, Oz will be signing copies uh, of his book, which you can buy at the book table, along with the, with the, the rest of those fine books that, that uh, Harris Healy is always pushing. 
No, no, no. They're good books. So uh, a part of the reason we do this is so that folks will be exposed to great, great authors. And there are just many wonderful books there, a number of books by Oz. But uh, Oz will be here at 8.15 signing uh, copies of his new book uh, and other books. And if tonight you get a copy of Oz's book, if you can hang around for a little bit, you get uh, a free CD of tonight's talk. Is that correct, Justin Homko? Can we pull that off? Yes. So if you can hang around for, for 15 minutes or so, uh, if, you, if you buy a copy of Oz's new book, you'll get a, a free copy of tonight's talk. Um, although they're going to edit this out, I think. Uh, okay, let me tell you a little bit about my dear friend Oz Guinness. Oz lives with his wife, Jenny, in the Washington, D.C. area. And Jenny has never been to a Socrates in the city before, but she's here tonight. Welcome, Jenny. Jenny does not have a phony uh, British accent, you'll notice, if you talk to her. She has a very phony American accent. Don't be, don't be fooled. It's very upscale. It's not Jenny. Um, okay. Oz, uh, please don't leave. Oz, uh, he's the great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer. We're going to start back a few generations. That's true. Oz was born in China during World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries, and he was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution uh, in 1949. He was expelled with many other foreigners in 1951 and returned to Europe where he was educated in England. Uh, Oz completed his undergraduate degree at the University of London and his DPhil in the social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. He's written or edited more than 20 books, as I said, many of them for sale here tonight. Before Oz came to the U.S. in 1984, uh, he was a freelance reporter with the BBC. Uh, he's been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and a guest scholar and a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, from 1991 uh, until just earlier this uh, last year, he was a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and a frequent speaker and seminar leader at political and business conferences in both the U.S. and Europe. Uh, he's lectured at many, many universities, uh, including Oxford and Cambridge, Harvard and Stanford. Uh, never Yale, though, right? Yeah, oh, he has. Okay, but it's... Interestingly, not in the bio, Oz. He knows how to hurt me. Uh, Oz has also spoken at the White House, Capitol Hill, many other public uh, policy arenas around Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, Oz really, as a, as a European visitor to the U.S. and an admirer, but detached observer of American uh, culture, he stands in the long tradition of outside voices who've contributed uh, much to America's ongoing discussion about the State of the Union. Uh, and you'll see that from a number of his books. But it is really a particular pleasure for me to introduce my dear friend, Oz Guinness. Thank you. I, le I leave you to work out from all that what the truth was and what the fun and the falsehood was. But I would just say gently, Eric, there's no such thing as a British accent. There are English accents, and there are Scottish accents, and there are Irish accents, and there are Welsh accents, but there's no British accent. <laughs> now, there was a time I was once speaking with Tony Campolo, I'm sure some of you have heard, and when he, it was his turn to speak, he got up and he said, now listen, this man speaks with his English accent for about 20 minutes before you realize he's not saying anything. <laughs> and he said, with my Philadelphia accent, I have to speak for about half an hour before you realize I am saying something. <laughs> so don't be fooled by the accent. 
Last week I was at a Washington gathering, and as people were coming out, a congressman who I know pretty well came up to me and gave me a huge hug, and he said to me, America is in decline, but many of our national leaders are in denial. Who today is raising the big issues in this campaign? Now, whether or not you agree with what he said, I want to tackle tonight one of the big issues. You could argue there are about a dozen or so issues which will be standing or falling issues for America in the next generation. And unless they're tackled and resolved, this country will decline. I'm not saying it's automatic, but certain things have to be tackled and resolved. And I want to pick up just one of them tonight. It would be a safe but sad bet that someone somewhere in the world right now is being killed in the name of religion. Our screens have been filled with the Sunni and the Shia murdering each other. If we cross over to Kashmir, it would be the Muslims and the Hindus. If we drop down to Sri Lanka, it would be the Hindus and the Buddhists. If we'd gone back a little while to the north of Ireland, it would be the Catholics and the Protestants. Many people looked out of the end of the last century, and you could see a humanitarian nightmare, a witch's brew of ancient hatreds of sectarian violence. Now, our atheist friends like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens would immediately jump in. How religion poisons everything. But in the debate that's followed their books, they've been forced to face the fact that more people were killed under secularist regimes with secularist leaders in the name of secularist ideologies than all the religious persecutions in the West, the repressions, put together. In other words, it's not just religion. It's clearly also ideology. If 100 million in the 20th century were killed in war, and another 100 million under political repression, and 100 million through tobacco, there were certainly 100 million killed in ethnic and sectarian violence. But as people look back on that and try to draw the lessons from the most murderous century the world's ever seen, there were some very simple lessons that come to the fore. The first is, the challenge of living with our deep differences is truly a global question today. It sounds abstract compared, say, with nuclear proliferation or HIV AIDS or other highly practical problems, but more people, certainly as many people, will die because of this issue not being right than any other. How do we live with our deep differences? In the globalized age, for obvious reasons like travel or the media or the massive movements of people in a world in migrating, it's now said everyone is now everywhere, which is a little exaggerated, but compared with the past, that's certainly true. We're in a world where living with our deep differences is a profound issue. And you realize immediately, we're not just talking about differences that are religious or ideological, little personal worldviews that people have and they keep to themselves. We're talking about entire worldviews and ways of life elbow to elbow with other entire worldviews and ways of life within the same society and often within the same school or whatever. We've got to face the fact that living with our deep differences, the deepest of all being religious and ideological, is a world problem. The second thing that was the lesson of the last century 
We are now seeing the aggravation of this through the emergence of a global public square. Now we here in this country are part of the Western tradition, which in terms of public squares goes right back to the Greeks and the whole notion of the agora. The public square, the literal place in public where people could meet together to discuss, to debate, and to decide issues of common concern, the agora. For the Romans, the forum. Now as things developed over the centuries since Athens and so on, we don't have a literal public square. It's not Lafayette Square or Trafalgar Square or the Place de la Concorde. It is the Congress or the House of Parliament or the French Assembly or whatever. But it's not only a formal place that's the public square. There's also the many expressions of the informal place. The op-ed pages of our paper. Neighborhood discussions in coffee bars. But now, of course, the global public square through the rise of the Internet. And among the many things the internet has done, one is very simple. Even when we're not deliberately speaking to the world, we can be today heard by the world and the world can speak back. I first noticed that in power when Jerry Falwell from Lynchburg, not exactly the capital of the Western world, Jerry Falwell made rude remarks in a private situation in Lynchburg, Virginia, about Muhammad. And a week later, riots in Lahore. Rude remarks in Lynchburg, riots in Lahore. And of course, after that, we've had things like Salman Rushdie, the Danish cartoons, the Pope's speech at Regensburg, and there'll be no end to this. Today, even when we're not speaking to the world, it could be tonight I make some rude remark in the middle. One of you taping this, putting it across, and tomorrow somewhere in the Middle East or wherever, you could have some furious reaction. That's our world in the age of the World Wide Web and the Internet. When we're not speaking to the world, we're now heard by the world. So the challenge of living with our deep differences is now transferred from the global public square, as we've understood in the West, to a, a grand public square that now potentially is worldwide. The third lesson that came up as people look back over the end of the last century is closer to home. This country, which James Madison described as having the true remedy for dealing with these things, living with our deep differences, religion and public life and these various things, he described that as the true remedy. The framers called this the Novus Ordus Seclorum, the new order for the ages. But as you know well from your history, while the framers understood that they were tackling something quintessentially modern, this country was the first new nation. And as such, it tackled things that are now worldwide modern problems, but they were tackled here first and earlier than anyone else. But the rest of the world for a long time wasn't interested because they were larger living with their traditional ways. So you take most European countries, for instance, Take my own, England, when I grew up. It was largely homogeneous. It had been shaped by many migrations, but it was largely homogeneous. The school I went to, about 500 boys, we had one person who was not white, and he was the son of a very wealthy Indian industrialist, as I remember. And just since I was a boy, London exploding with all the members of the Commonwealth coming to Britain. And you can see a diversity in London today which beggars the imagination of previous generations. But suddenly, 
When nations like England or Holland or France or many others wrestle with these challenges of exploding diversity, they suddenly realize America was onto something. A pluribus unum, out of many, one. But at the very moment the whole world realizes the significance of the American experiment, the United States is not doing so well herself. And you can think of how nearly 40 years now we've had endless controversies and endless lawsuits and endless acrimony through what's broadly understood as the culture warring. And clearly this country, which was and could be described as having the true remedy today, is not doing as well as she should. And in all sorts of areas you can see how contentious this issue is. Now I would argue if we had longer that this issue, getting it right, is absolutely pivotal to the American Republic, but it's also absolutely crucial for everyone of any faith who takes their faith seriously and wants to live it with integrity. So many of us have a deep stake in understanding this issue and resolving this issue, let alone, once again, being a city on a hill to the rest of the world or what Pericles called a school to the world or whatever. This issue has to be got right or the American Republic is in deep, deep trouble. Now let me lay out the issue or some of the contours of the issue in the time we have and I want to argue for something that is a minority position so far and lacks national leadership but many of us including other people in New York like Richard John Newhouse believe this is the way forward and I will argue something that is actually against the thinking of many of those who are identified as Christians in public life and I will argue that they are part of the problem more than part of the answer. But of course each of you has to think it through for yourself and you know well that I'm an Englishman. So why listen to me? You've got to think it through for yourself and as I say as American citizens you've got to so argue for this that you see a resolution in public life for the sake of the future of this country. Start back in history. Think for a moment how we here in this country are the product of one of the three great western settlements of religion and public life. There are in fact many settlements because each nation with its own history, its own culture does it a slightly different way. But the big three are France, England, not Britain, England here, and the United States. And in each case you have a formative event which casts a long shadow down the centuries but in each case, each of them is under stress and threat and needs to be renegotiated under current conditions. At one extreme, you have the French. And clearly, the formative year, as so often in French things, was 1789, the Revolution. And you can capture the whole French dilemma in the cry of Diderot, the encyclopedist, which was picked up by the Jacobin revolutionaries. We must strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. Now, unpack that and you see what happened in 1789. There was a state church. Church and state were in deep collusion. Both were corrupt and both were oppressive. So the revolution was against both throwing off the church and the state. And as the French say, the mentalité, the mindset that came out of that was very simple. If you're in favor of faith, you must be reactionary. 
if you're in favor of freedom, you must be secular. Because secularism was the way forward for freedom. And you can see in the French today, talk to young students in the Sorbonne and so on, that mentality is still there. And it lies behind the French refusal to give, say, Muslim headscarves any rights in schools, or the French attempt to write out any reference to the Christian faith, which has 1,500 years of influence in European history in the words of the European Constitution. A very strict secularism which represents today the extreme in the light of the collapse of communism, which once was the most strict secularism in the Western system. As so often, England's the middle. Compromise. The key year was 1688, the Glorious Revolution. In 1688, they kept a state church, the Church of England, as a bulwark against what was perceived as the Catholic menace from Europe. But they kept a state church, but it was not as corrupt and certainly not as oppressive as the French state church. So in England, there's never been any militant anti-clericalism, never any massive hostility. There was never any St. Bartholomew's Day massacre, uh, as you saw of the Huguenots, say, in France. But it was still a state church, not voluntary even in the quietest way, somewhat coercive. So over the course of centuries, it has faded away until today, as many people say, the Church of England is rather like a national utility. We have coal, we have electricity, we have gas, we have nuclear energy, and we have the Church of England. It's a national utility, as the cynics say, for the hatching, matching, and dispatching of citizens. You baptize them when they're born, you marry them if they want a nice church ceremony, and you bury them at the end of their lives, and that's the only darkening of the church door that they do. And as one Anglican social scientist who's also a minister says, the Church of England's like a beautiful west front of a Gothic cathedral, beautiful but not very influential. And many facts are bandied round, such as the fact that more people are in the mosque on Friday in England than are in the Church of England on Sunday. There are more Christians as a whole, but in the Church of England on Sunday. A state church, not massively repudiated like the French, but a slow withering away over time. And of course today, men's confusion. And the United States is the other extreme. Key year here is New York in 1791 and the First Amendment. And as you know, the first 16 words of the First Amendment are the most decisive and the absolutely unique part of the Constitution, not separation of powers. Montesquieu had argued that way, way earlier. Switzerland had practiced it way, way earlier. But the First Amendment and the Religious Liberty Clauses, absolutely unique. And for the first time, religion is solely voluntary. And faith flourishes not despite disestablishment, but because of it. And the rest, as you know, is history. Now, what was, and here's the second point I want to make, what was the influence of that extraordinary, bold, and daring decision of the framers? Think of three things. First, it guaranteed what they saw as the first liberty. Not just first logically in the First Amendment, because actually there were a couple of things before that as they originally drafted which didn't make it. No. But religious liberty or freedom of conscience was the first liberty for the framers for two reasons. Logically, 
and historically. If you think of it, we all value freedom of assembly. You want to get together with people to whom you want to get together with. But that actually, freedom of assembly, assumes and requires freedom of speech. You don't want to get together about nothing. You want to get together with people to whom you want to talk about things that matter to you. And freedom of assembly assumes and requires freedom of speech. Now, equally, freedom of speech, which for many Americans today is the first liberty, and certainly for people in the press, freedom of speech assumes and requires freedom of conscience. You don't want to speak out about the weather or all sorts of trivial things. You want to talk out in the public arena about things that matter to you supremely because you are bound to them based on the dictates of conscience. And the framers are exactly right. Logically, freedom of conscience precedes freedom of speech just as freedom of speech precedes freedom of assembly. Now, that isn't so today. For many people today, religious liberty is liberty for the religious. It's kind of like the legal appendix in the Constitution. It's there, and it matters for the religious people, but it's not fundamental to America. No, the framers understood, and you can see this again and again, that religious liberty and civil liberty were both twin pillars of the foundations of this country. The motive for why the revolution, as Washington and many others say, it was logically the first liberty. But they also argued that it was historically the first, in the sense it was only when religious liberty was guaranteed that the other liberties were also guaranteed. Some of them argued, and even some of the great Jewish jurists, like Leo Pfeffer, argued in the last generation, it would be only so long as religious liberty was guaranteed that the other liberties would also be guaranteed. Now, that's very important today because we're in a culture where civil liberties now trump religious liberty. And we're in a culture where many people don't think fundamental principles. They try and stem evils by tackling things such as hate speech or hate crimes rather than really guaranteeing what are the bedrock positive foundational freedoms. It was, for the framers, the first liberty. And that's eroded today. The second reason it was so bold and daring and decisive was that the First Amendment underlies the spiritual and social vitality of this country. Now, again, in many circles, that would be an odd statement today. If you ask many people, why are Americans so dynamic? Why are they so entrepreneurial? The answer would simply be free market capitalism. Level playing fields, competition, all this sort of stuff. But if you think, capitalism came into this country, earlier in Europe, but into this country, several decades after the First Amendment. But the effect of the First Amendment was actually directly parallel to the effect of free market competition. What business people talk of as demonopolization is actually the equivalent to what the First Amendment speaks of as disestablishment. Religious liberty with equality for all is the equivalent of a level playing field and a free market competition. And you can see almost from the beginning the explosion of a spiritual, social, entrepreneurialism that is a result of the First Amendment and the way it touched things such as the early 19th century, the educational movement, all the little booster colleges being found across America. 
or the explosion of charitable outreach. It's said that both in Europe, in, above all in Britain, but also here in America, you have the greatest out explosion of giving and caring almost in all human history, certainly rivaling Francis of Assisi or Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century. No other civilizations had anything like it. And much of it directly rooted to the faith communities reaching out in that way. And the third great effect was obviously in the reform movements. An explosion of reforms, not just the abolition, but supremely abolition and many, many others. All of them lying in that entrepreneurial vitality released by the First Amendment. Incidentally, you might disagree with this, but that's why I think the present administration's faith-based initiatives are dead wrong. Laudable with an aim to release the same spiritual social vitality today by bringing in the faith communities. But in fact, going about it in exactly the opposite way of the 19th century. In the early 19th century, it was when the faith communities became independent from any state support at all. In other words, the faith communities had to rely on their own beliefs, their own believers, their own generosity, their own sacrifice, their own dedication, that this explosion of giving and caring took place. And always you see, if you look at the history of this, when any faith community puts its nose into the trough of Uncle Sam or any nation, eventually two things tend to happen. One is dependency, government money and things, the other is a slow, steady secularization because the government can't allow certain things. And often, say in the dealing of drugs or whatever it is, it's the distinctly spiritual part of the ministry which is the power behind helping people off the addictions or whatever. And if that's cut out in the name of government control and regulations, you've undercut the very distinctiveness of the ministry. And I think the faith-based initiatives, particularly as they started out, are actually being incredibly counterproductive and don't deserve to be passed on. The president administrator is actually doing a better job, but the early ones, I think, were totally counterproductive if you understand your own extraordinary history and this contribution of entrepreneurialism because of the First Amendment. The third great legacy of the First Amendment, never perfect but remarkable, was social harmony. Now we've got to say immediately, never perfect. Catholics know well what the Know Nothing movement meant, the vicious prejudice of even great Americans like Samuel Morse. Many of the Jews faced discrimination. Certainly there were egregious violations. But at the same time, I find many secular liberals cite those and they forget the founders got religious liberty most nearly right long before they got race right and long before they got women's issues right. Race and the women's issues lagged a long, long, long way behind and some of the deepest American evils and hypocrisy lie in that history. Whereas they did get religious liberty almost completely right from the beginning, although it was never quite worked out in the fullest, most consistent way in part of the 19th century. But when it did work out, and it was much better than any other nation in the world with such diversity, you can see it brought together two things rarely brought together in history and very difficult to bring together today. On the one hand, strong religious convictions, and there was liberty for that. On the other hand, strong political civility. Now, that's easier to say. 
And you all, as heirs of this extraordinary system, you almost yawn when you hear someone like me say that as a foreigner. But just think of countries elsewhere to see the contrast, because always contrast is the mother of clarity. Take Western Europe. In most of the post-war years, until the arrival of the British Commonwealth immigrants and the Muslim immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa, Europe was remarkably civil about religion, with one exception, Northern Ireland. But on the whole, Europe was remarkably civil. But any of you travel to Europe, you, you say, and you would be right to say, big deal. There's no religion in Europe to be uncivil about. So if you compare, say, parts of Europe with parts of this country where the Europeans came to, so take, say, Scandinavia. Go to Minnesota, church going in Minnesota, still way above the American average, hovers around the 40%. Minnesota, much of it, 70% where the Scandinavians are settled. What is it in Sweden itself? 3%. If 3% go to church, they're not going to fight about religion in public life. The Middle East, of course, is the opposite problem. Passionate religious convictions, no civility, no liberty, no life. And this country, with its sometime violations, has an incredible record in terms of social harmony. And while no one's utopian of thinking you can export this to the rest of the world any more than you can export democracy easily, there are lessons in the way the United States has done it, and unquestionably, the First Amendment is the greatest contribution towards social harmony. Now, of course, and here's thirdly, we're not there today. What are some of the factors that bedevil the present situation and take us a long way from the framers' original settlement? The obvious one, which is not actually the worst of the bedeviling factors, is the explosion of pluralism. Now, in the 18th century, the most diverse place on the earth, probably, were the middle colonies, Pennsylvania. Scores and scores and scores of little sects, but mostly Christian. Dutch, Scottish, German, Swiss, you name it, but all Christian, or mostly Protestant. And then came the Catholics, and then came the Jews. And in the early 19th century, the so-called Maiden America religions, such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, and you can actually trace right down till the late 50s. There was an incredible pluralism in this country, but it was loosely biblical, not with a capital B, but in the sense that the extraordinary religious diversity almost completely traced its ancestry back to the Bible. So Mormonism does not come from the Quran. Mormonism does not come from the Pali Canon or the Bhagavad Gita. It comes, however you like to see the derivations and the distortions, from the Bible. And you can see in a loose way, not biblical or the capital B, let alone orthodox, most of the diversity right up till 1959 was biblical. Then in the 60s, there was an extraordinary transformation. First of all the secularists, who went from something like 2% to 9, 10, or 11%, the biggest change in the religious map in the 20th century. And of course, highly significant because mostly in the educated classes, touching the universities and the world of the press and media. 
And then since the 60s, the explosion of all the world's religions, the Buddhists who came in after the Vietnam War and the influx of the Muslims and so on. So today you have examples of all the world's religions somewhere in this country, probably mostly in California. <laughs> the second factor is a slightly lesser factor, but worth noting. An expanding statism. In 1791, there was no church and state. There were churches in the plural and states in the plural. But there was no question that the relationship between the two, the churches, or if you like, the faith communities, were close and powerful spiritually and socially in people's lives. Not today. Since then, you've seen an almost flip-flopping. So in many ways, the state is powerful. Maybe not physically, geographically close, but take April 15th. The state is powerful, unavoidable in people's lives, and many have a faith community, whatever it is, that's little more strong spiritually or socially than their membership of a golf club in some cases. There's been a turnaround. Now that's important because some of the worst decisions about religious liberty in the last 25 years have been made in the name of the state. Ironically, if you ask, and we didn't get into the law tonight, but if you ask many religious liberty activists which was the worst decision, many would cite the Smith case. Details don't bother us. But what's interesting is the Smith case was argued by the most conservative justice who is also the most devout believer on the Supreme Court in the name of the state. And you can see that things like zoning and regulations will prove more of a problem in the future unless religious liberty is kept strong. But it's the third factor that's the principal bedeviling factor. An emerging separationism. You've probably heard members of the religion right talking about the separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. Congresswoman Kathleen Harris argued that it was a myth and a lie in the last election. Now that would be a huge surprise to most Americans in your history. The separation of church and state is not as a word in the Constitution. But the idea emphatically is, and none of the founders or framers with their very different views of faith and faith in public life would have disagreed. You only need to read Alexis de Tocqueville, 1831, he says, he didn't find anyone in the country who disagreed with the separation of church and state. Surprisingly, even his own fellow believers, Roman Catholics, who in France would have supported a state church. But here they saw it as the secret of American freedom and they supported it solidly. Now, in fact, almost no one disagreed with it until there was a shift in the 1940s. Encapsulated in the Everson case, but led by the so-called strict separationists. And they included not only atheists and Jews like Leo Pfeffer, they included certain Southern Baptists. In fact, the justices who strongly argued into law were very devout Southern Baptists who saw that that strict separation was a good way of keeping Catholics out of public life. And one of them, sadly, was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. In other words, the Baptists who were involved in that had a very, very mixed record. But that was something new. It was called separationism or strict separation. And the idea came the religion is inviolably private. And the public square is inviolably secular. 
Now, Jefferson, the author of the wall of separation phrase borrowed from Roger Williams, Jefferson never practiced that. Any of you know Mr. J, our son was at the University of Virginia and know all that very well living in Virginia. Mr. J, who wrote to the Danbury Baptists on a Friday in 1801 about the wall of separation, on Sunday he went to the largest church service in America, which is where? Under the roof of the Capitol. And every single Sunday he was president and in town, he went there and contributed to the funds. He invited Episcopalians and Baptists into the White House, into the Treasury, and to many of the executive branch buildings. As I put it, his wall of separation, which for him was a very utilitarian notion, was not a strict, straight line like the separation is today. It actually is a sort of wavy line, rather like his serpentine walls at Monticello, or in Charlottesville at large. Separationism, though, is the problem because it forms one of the extremes in the current culture wars, which leads me on to where we are now. The options that we face today, and this is where you as citizens have to make up your own mind, if there's to be a resolution of the culture warring, and of course religion is just the holy war front of a much wider culture war. As I and good many others, but not the majority, see it, there are two extremes and a positive alternative. At one extreme, you have what both Richard Newhouse and I call the sacred public square. Not an established church, but a preference, a privileging of one, such as those in the religious right who argue for Christian school prayer in the public schools. The argument against that is that in a world as diverse as ours, to privilege any faith like that is neither just nor workable and will be the source of endless controversies. And certainly that's what we've seen coming from that side. I would go further to those who are my fellow Christians who argue that and say that if you look at the rise of the religious right in terms of the reactions it's created, I pointed out earlier, or I should have pointed out earlier, that European secularity is in direct response to yesterday's corrupt state churches. That is the most powerful factor of why Europe is the most secular content continent in the world. A direct reaction to yesterday's corrupt state churches. This country, of course, never had that. Because of the First Amendment, a congeniality, a hospitality towards religions, as Eisenhower said, of any kind that you like. But you can see with the rise of the religious right in the 1970s and the endless culture warring of this issue, you can see in educated circles a steadily mounting American equivalent of the European repudiation of religion. It began first over issues of religion and politics. Take a book like Kevin Phillips's American Theocracy and charges about American theocrats and fascists and so on, as Christopher Hedges and others have argued. Now, of course, it's reached a crescendo with the new atheists, and it's not religion and politics that's the trouble, it's religion of any sort. Christopher Hitchens says how it poisons everything. Clearly, behind the religious right is the specter of Muslim extremism, Islamism. But you can see a steadily mounting American equivalent of the European repudiation of religion among the educated classes. If that settles in concrete, 
it will be profoundly fateful for the future of this country. The other side is what Richard Newhouse rightly called the naked public square. And to be fair to them, this is not just the left or atheism. There's a mixture of those who are secularists with those who are strict separationists, as I described earlier, and those who are called legal secularists. Thinkers who followed John Rawls at Harvard or Jürgen Habermas in Europe who had this idea, Habermas has actually changed in the last two years, who had the idea that religion is inviolably private and the public square is inviolably secular. It's a neutral arena of competing self-interests and faith and character and virtue have no place. The naked public square. Now, of course, that's even less just and less workable because most Americans are profoundly religious from whatever faith they come from, the overwhelming majority. So liberals defending this today in its secular version have found themselves in profoundly illiberal positions because they're asking people to enter public life and shed the very thing that makes them who they are and helps them to see the world as they do and choose right and wrong and justice and humanness and so on. They're asked to shed all that and become neutral, but no human being is neutral. And of course, under those neutral conditions, those with a secularist faith have free run to enter the public square themselves, the sacred public square and the naked. The alternative is a civil public square. Now, the trouble with civility, it's a wimp word. People confuse it with niceness or a Victorian tea party or a Japanese etiquette at some fancy whatever. Not at all. Civility, if you understand it from the Greeks and the Romans right down today, is both a republican, with a small r, republican virtue and a democratic necessity. Well, what do I mean by a civil public square? A civil public square is where people of all faiths, and for our secularist friends we have to add a no faith, although we think they have a faith too, people of all faiths and no faith are free to enter and engage public life on the basis of their faith. That's religious liberty. But, here's the big but, within a framework of what is agreed to be just and free for everyone else too. So a right for a Christian is automatically a right for a Jew or an atheist or a Mormon or Hindu or whatever it is, including those that are considered the most unpopular. Take, say, something that many people think rather disreputable, like Scientology, bless Tom Cruise's heart. People of all positions are free to enter and engage public life on the basis of their faith, but within that framework of what's agreed to be just and free for others too. In other words, a right for one person is automatically a right for another person and a responsibility for both. Now, that has many implications, including the fact, if that's so, we have to learn how to debate our differences with robustness but with civility. So we don't go for the jugular. For instance, there was a debate 15 years or so ago in Maryland on abortion. And after a week or so, everyone drew back. It was the ugliest debate in the Maryland Assembly since the Civil War. Because no one debated abortion and its social impact and so on. People were saying, well, you're a fundamentalist and you're an atheist and so on. In other words, they went for the jugular and the faiths from which people came rather than discussing the implications of the policy and maintaining a robust civility. Now, that position, and I said it very simply, is 
powerfully misunderstood in certain circles. So let me deal with the three main misunderstandings. First, some people, both Christians and Jews and atheists, are suspicious because they view a civil public square as a civil religion. Any of you know the history of civil religion? The word was introduced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you didn't have a, a state church, an established church, to give you the moral legitimacy that was the binding unity of a country, you had to have something. So whatever it was that was the binding cohesion of a nation is so important to a nation that it's elevated and eventually elevated to the point it is worshipped. And it becomes a civil religion. Now, atheists are suspicious of that because it's religion smuggled back in with patriotic colors. Jews and Christians should rightly be opposed to it because any time we worship what binds us together as a people, it's idolatrous. In the biblical view, there is one God, there is no God but God. And even God's greatest gifts, including patriotism, are gifts for which we're profoundly grateful. And patriotism is a wonderful Christian virtue. But nationalism, when it goes beyond that and becomes idolatrous, is extremely dangerous. So a civil public philosophy, a civil public square, is not a civil religion. The various gifts and freedoms are wonderful gifts, but they're secular gifts God has given that we don't worship them. We worship him if we're followers of Jesus Christ. The second misunderstanding is subtler. People view civility as a search for a lowest common denominator unity. In other words, pursuing it through such things as interfaith dialogue. Now, in my view, there is a place, a small but limited place for interfaith dialogue. There are areas of overlap in our beliefs. But at the end of the day, the plain fact is that what divides us religiously is deeper than what unites us. Put differently, there will always be differences. So followers of Jesus and Muslims can dialogue. But no faithful Muslim will ever bow and say Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And no faithful follower of Jesus will ever compromise a belief that he is Lord and God. And nothing, including the state or anything else, will seduce us into saying no. There are differences that will never be bridged if we're each faithful to our faiths. And of course, the difference between the Abrahamic faiths and, say, the Eastern faiths is even larger than that. There is a limited there is a useful place for interfaith dialogue. But when you see responses to the call for the Muslim common word and so on, I think it's fundamentally flawed. There will be no unity achieved through interfaith dialogue alone. This approach of a civil public square is rather creating a framework within which first we can be ourselves with our differences, which make all the difference to us, of which we're convinced based on freedom of conscience that they are true. And we can also negotiate those differences with people who hold very different views, but robustly and civilly. And my own illustration of this is the Queensbury rules in boxing. Regardless of what you think of boxing, there's no question its history has been brutal. 
So much so, if you know the Romans, who were not exactly unbrutal and loved their gladiatorial games in which millions of animals died and maybe a million human beings died, the Romans banned boxing as too brutal. But it was, and in the 1850s, 100 round fights in the bare knuckle contests, and often one or other died at the end of it. And the Marquis of Queensbury, one of 19th century English aristocrats who loved sport, came along and he lent his name to the Queensbury rules, and that shapes modern boxing. In other words, you now fight in a ring, under rules, and under a referee. Now, they touch gloves at the beginning, and they don't punch below the belt if they don't want to be disqualified, but they still fight. And that, in many ways, is a picture of democratic civility. There are deep differences that are competitive. One or other will prevail. Wilberforce fought nearly 20 rounds, year after year after year after year, until abolition knocked out slavery in Britain forever, and so on. In other words, Civility is not a wimpish look for lowest common denominator. We talk long enough, we love each other long enough, we'll all fall in the heap and have one grand agreement in the middle. No. <laughs> the culture wars is not wrong because of the issues it's about. Life is important. Families are important. Truth is important. Character and leadership are important. The issues are actually crucial for the future of civilization. It's the manner in which it's being fought out. And we need to see that civility is a civility with convictions and yet with competition. So when we disagree with people, it's robustly, as I keep saying, but we don't go for the jugular. It's also with civility. The third great disagreement usually comes from fundamentalists and in the last couple of years comes from the new atheists. And that is that civility is a form of false tolerance. We'll have to accept all these crazy ideas that people believe in this way. Now, I used to hear that for a long time from my fundamentalist friends, but you can read it in Richard Dawkins. One of the features of the new atheists, they don't just refuse to tolerate what they see as extremists, they refuse to tolerate moderates who tolerate extremists. If faith heads, which is those of us who have faith, are following a delusion... As Dawkins said, the government has every right to step in and teach parents teaching their children faith. And you have in Richard Dawkins and sometimes in Harris an extreme intolerance from that side because they're afraid if you tolerate, you'll be tolerating Osama bin Laden and 9-11. Now, many fundamentalists say roughly the same thing. Tolerance is dangerous. Now, the word tolerance is a slippery term. It was introduced after the wars of religion. And there's no question that tolerance is infinitely better than the alternative, intolerance. But there's a problem with tolerance. It's always the stronger tolerating the weaker. The majority tolerating the minority. The government tolerating the citizens. Whereas freedom of conscience is not that. There's nothing condescending or patronizing about freedom of conscience. It is a right but where do our fundamentalist friends go wrong? Let me put it simply like this. The right to believe anything does not mean that anything anyone believes is right. The first half of that sentence is freedom of conscience. Even God, we Christians would say, allows people to choose against him even at the cost of eternity. 
He doesn't rape their conscience, as Roger Williams says. The right to believe anything is absolute. That's what's enshrined in freedom of conscience. But that does not mean that anything anyone believes is right. What they believe may be muddle-headed, may be dangerous socially, may be violent, and its implications could also be profoundly evil. But it means that when we disagree with them, within a civil framework, we have to disagree civilly and really out-argue them. And of course, in public debate, if we don't get into the debate and prevail in the debate, then it's our own fault if our views don't prevail. The right to believe anything does not mean that anything anyone believes is right. What would it take to see a solution? If you think of it without getting too detailed, it's relatively obvious. First, it would take leadership. Leadership. Supremely at the highest national level where there is no leadership in this at the moment. Most political leaders in the last generation have used the culture warring in the interest of their own party. One of President Reagan's cabinet secretaries said to me, I will stop you getting to the president about an initiative that's then going on because the culture wars are in the interests of the Republicans. I said to him, Mr. Secretary, they are today. Sometimes they'll flow that way, sometimes the other way. They're not in the interest long term in America. But so far, we had no national leader or leaders at various other levels who've been prepared to stand above the fray and say, in effect, a pox on both your houses. Here is a better way for the United States as well as for citizens of all beliefs. We need leadership. Secondly, we need vision. I've put some of these things very briefly. Richard Newhouse and others have argued these things. But it's got to be with a vision that captures the immoral imagination so people really are inspired by breaking with the cultural warring ways of thinking and really arguing for a better way. It needs vision that's spelled out in great detail and profundity. And the third thing it needs is application to the trouble spots. The two main ones being public policy debates and public education. For the last 50 years, you've not only had a general crisis in the public schools, you had a lamentable crisis in terms of citizenship education and certainly in the areas that touch on these things. But it's when 5th graders and 8th graders and 11th graders and so on are taught these things all the way through as to what religious liberty means and civility is worked out that eventually it will be strong once again in this country. Now, your citizens... I'm just an outside admirer. I just finished the magnificent new biography of Alexis de Tocqueville. And there's a wonderful little time in his story. You know he was a great admirer of this country, democracy in America and so on. And by the same token, Tocqueville was very sad about the state of democracy in his own country, France, and the way the French Revolution betrayed its hopes. And towards the end of his life, Tocqueville remarked, With a revolution, as with a novel, the hardest part to invent is the ending. The beginning of the 21st century, you are Americans who pick up the torch of freedom at an incredible hour for America. There are things that are massive problems, of which this is maybe one of 12, which unless they're solved, as I said at the beginning, within this generation, this republic will decline. Your framers wrote 
a brilliant first chapter. And there have been many brilliant chapters since then. But there's an extraordinary challenge to your generation to see if there are enough people with the understanding, with the courage to stand up and make a difference and see the great promise of the American Republic fulfilled. You care because you're citizens. I'm just an admirer. I also care because as a follower of Jesus, it's important for me to be able to have the freedom to enter and engage public life. And what's at stake is not only political, it's also the individual freedom for all of us. Who will pick up that challenge in this generation? That's my question to you. Over to you for our discussion. Thank you so much, Oz. We have a little bit of time for uh, Q&A, and uh, I think we're going to open up some of these windows here. It is hot, is it not? Yes. yes. Can somebody, uh, we had uh, somebody on that. Maybe their uh, shift is over now. Uh, if, <laughs> whoever's supposed to open the windows, if they can do that now, they won't be interrupting anything. Everyone's asleep. So uh, it is really hot. So let's do that so we have a, a few more minutes um, of... Um, uh, okay, and we're going to end at 8.15. Thank you very much for those excellent remarks. Uh, my question is about Europe. Uh, it's atheism, I would say, and I think you've intimated, is a relative atheism, but still significantly different from that of the United States. And I'd also characterize it as an atheism from apathy, if you will, rather than from militancy. It's, it wasn't driven by the Dawkins's old or, or new. My question to you, assuming you accept that premise, is, is Europe's gradual evolution into relative atheism a positive or negative trend for the well-being of European society, and why? I would challenge that Europe is moving towards atheism. Actually, there are a lot of qualifications. For instance, if you look at the leadership generation, they are unquestionably heavily secular. But just as they were reacting against corrupt religion in previous centuries, you can see the younger generation, brought up with a huge vacuum, is into all sorts of crazy things, the New Age spirituality above all. Also, you can see that what's often called secularism is not actually. So one social scientist looking at England says there's a, no strong beliefs, but there's a powerful sense of belonging. And actually people have some sort of residual sense of faith, and uh, it, it comes out in all sorts of ways. So I would dispute that Europe is as secular as people think. But the most important thing of all, Europe is deeply in trouble religiously. What's sad to me is that many of those who once were concerned of this aren't. They've given up despairing. The best statements now on winning back Europe come from Pope Benedict by a long way. And the Catholic Church has committed itself to the re-evangelization of Europe. And it's beginning to proceed. Now, if you know European history, the early church magnificently won the Roman Empire. 
That was a colossal achievement over four centuries, replacing the faith of Rome. But when the Western Empire, not the Eastern Empire, the Western Empire fell, so also did much of the Western Church. And it was overrun by barbarians and many others. The second conversion of Europe, as it's called, was the missionary winning back under the Irish and then the Scottish and other Celtic missionaries who fanned out from Ireland, Scotland. And you can trace even just, say, following Celtic crosses right down as far as Switzerland, Germany, northern Italy, and so on. It was a missionary movement. They brought the gospel. They brought the scriptures. They brought education. They actually laid the foundations of what became later, for better or worse, Christendom. So I say to my European Christian friends, you're on the edge now of a third mission to Europe. So a lot of people look at statistics, but statistics are just things that describe the background. And they don't tell us what we should do in response to these things. So Europe is not as secular as it looks, and there are powerful movements underway to reverse it. What's a good short question to ask our candidates in this election that gets at this issue of civility? <laughs> uh, I, I'll leave you as citizens to answer that one because you put part of the problem. You have to have that good short thing and obviously among the factors is not just the culture warring but things like sound bites on television, the entertainment style of the media, uh, the hate and fear driven nature of things like direct mail. In other words, we need to examine all the technological factors which are aggravating the problem. But the trouble is at the moment, take up the issue we've looked at in the present campaign. The Democrats realized they were sunk if they didn't appeal to the religious people. And you can see before the election, both, or many of the Democratic candidates, went out of their way to show that they understood faith. Now, ironically, there was a time in which the two Democratic candidates actually had a closer relation to faith than some of the leading Republican candidates, which threw things in the mixer. But the issue as a whole, as a national issue, as it happens, it bubbles up here. You know, Madeleine Murray O'Hare started it with school prayer. More recently, it's been the Ten Commandments or Christmas Wars. It came up in the election mainly through Romney countered by Huckabee. But you notice the way it came up. He made a speech, and for a few days, a furor of discussion, and over. And we're on to something else. Unresolved. So what citizens have got to demand, and you've got to work out for yourself, I said there are 12 issues that need to be touched. I mean, you make your own issue. What are the issues that you feel leaders have to be touched to have the litmus test of true leadership? And whatever way you can, insist that they are raised in public life. And certainly if I had any influence with some of these people, I would raise this one. Some leaders got to tackle it, resolve it, and set out a way forward for everyone. Hello, this is my first time here, so hopefully it's all right if I ask a question. Uh, you brought up John Rawls. Oh, sorry. Brought up what? Okay. <laughs> uh, you brought up John Rawls and his view of the public square, and his project was inherently about bringing people to the public square around the idea of reason and everyone being reasonable, which is why he wanted everyone to leave religion private. And it strikes me as perhaps your project is extremely similar 
but you want everyone to come to the public square under the banner of civility. And perhaps people coming to the public square have very uncivil stories. So how is your project different from his? And what do you do with people who need to come to the table, but perhaps they're not very civilized or well, their stories aren't very civilized? Rawls' notion of a publicly accessible reason is actually an Enlightenment myth, which is common to certain secular liberals, but isn't shared by most people. Now, where I, as a follower of Jesus, would agree with him is that when, say, a person of faith, a Christian or a Jew, say, enters the public square, we're talking about, say, same-sex marriage, it is both inappropriate and ineffective to argue, say, to an atheist, the Bible says, therefore. The atheist doesn't believe in God. He doesn't read the Bible. He doesn't accept that authority. It's not persuasive. So what I'm saying, the people of faith have the freedom to enter and engage, the responsibility to enter and engage, they have to have put simply in the old Christian language, have a powerful persuasive case, know how to make a, persuade, a persuasive case. So say you take the Apostle Paul. When he's preaching in a synagogue, he expounds the Torah. When he's in the Areopagus, he doesn't start with the Old Testament. He starts with Cretan philosophers and so on. In other words, Christians need to, have to know how to make their case to whoever they're in in ways that are publicly persuasive. They may not be saying the Bible says therefore and hitting people over the head. That will be neither appropriate nor effective. So I agree with him. We have to have publicly persuasive arguments. But the idea that there's a common rationality, which we'll all agree with if we leave our faith in, in the private sphere, is a myth. Now, he used to agree with Habermas. Habermas has gone back on roles and now says people of faiths have a legitimate place, an important place to to play in public life.